Our most merciful God, we thank you that you have given us life and breath in which we may adore you and worship you and know you. And we thank you that we have this time, even today, to study your word in order that we may know you more accurately, more fully, and in order that we may rightly examine ourselves in light of what your word reveals to us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would use this time to stir our hearts with conviction, to strengthen us with right assurance, and to encourage us and equip us for every good work in Christ Jesus. May he be glorified during this time, and may we see, by the power of your Holy Spirit working within us, may we see our great, great need for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the Gospel according to John. We will be in chapter 2 again today. Uh, We'll be looking at uh, just a few verses, verses 23 to 25. So uh, I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. And what you'll see when you get there is that we have come to a very complicated text today. Uh, To say the very least, it is a complicated text. And the fact that it is um, very complicated may explain why uh, a lot of commentators and pastors who preach through John or, or write commentary through John, just skip these verses altogether. Uh, Even great and very respectable theologians from yesteryear, like A.W. Pink and uh, Alexander McLaren, didn't say a thing in their commentaries about this passage. Uh, Even R.C. Sproul, in his commentary, which is really more at at a lay level, uh, he barely mentioned this text in his commentary on the gospel according to John. And I don't say this to boast, like, look at us, well, we're going to cover it. No, I I say this um, as a word of uh, of caution, to issue a word of caution. Uh, to, to have some caution as we proceed with this text because this is a passage that is really, really easy for us to misunderstand. Uh, but I also issue a word of caution because I believe that when this passage is rightly understood, it may be received as being very, very offensive. Very offensive and maybe even downright terrifying. And yet... We have to understand that sometimes it is very good for us to be terrified. A healthy dose of the fear of the Lord prevents us from acting unwisely, among other things. Fear of the Lord, Solomon Solomon tells us in the Proverbs, is the beginning of knowledge. And he goes on to say later in the Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And there are certain passages which will inevitably invoke within us a sense of the fear of the Lord. And our passage today, I believe, is one of those passages. And yet, while there are many passages in Scripture that should rightly invoke a fear of the Lord, I'm convinced that what the church needs in our day is just this. 
I believe that this is badly, badly missing uh, in the lives of so many Christians today, even in my own life to a certain extent. But the lack of the fear of the Lord has created what I and, and many others consider to be an, ap- uh, an absolute epidemic of dangerously shallow or outrightly false faith in the American church. And we have to understand that while It's completely true that humanity is radically depraved, sinful to the core. That's what we looked at last week. We are spiritually dead by nature, separated from God by sin and by the effects of sin uh, under, under the wrath of God by nature. It's also true that only God is capable of perfectly seeing and judging a person's heart. To complicate the matter further, we're also told that we can know a tree by its fruit. So while we can't see a person's heart, we can see something in their lives. We should be able to see something in their lives. So that's to say that a Christian should be identifiable based on the way that we live our lives. We're to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We're we're supposed to be out in the world, but we're not supposed to be worldly. See, genuine faith is an inward transformation. It transforms us inwardly, but that inward transformation produces outward results as well, that we would call good fruit. So put another way, our sanctification, our sanctification means our growth in purity, our growth in holiness, our growth in Christ-likeness. Our sanctification is evidence of our justification, And justification, of course, is our having been forgiven, uh, cleansed, and imparted new life by God in Christ Jesus. So our sanctification is proof of our justification. Where we are right now, we're all in the process of being sanctified, is evidence of some change that took place within us when we came to Christ in faith and were forgiven. And I bring all this up at the outset of our study of the gospel according to John today because in this passage, we're going to see people believing in Jesus. John is going to tell us that these people were believing in Jesus, but Jesus does not believe in these people. I know that sounds confusing. We're going to work our way through that. But commentators basically fall into one of three camps when it comes to this passage. First, uh, there, there are some people that think that these people who believe in Jesus have legitimate faith. Second, there are people who don't think that these people have legitimate faith. And then third, there are people who just say, I'm not going to touch this passage, so hands off. Uh, It's a very difficult passage. But the point of this passage is this. This is the thesis, this is the, the, the central message of this text, and that is this. We need to entrust ourselves to Jesus in a way that demonstrates that he has entrusted himself to us. We must entrust ourselves to Jesus in a way that demonstrates that he has entrusted himself to us. And we'll talk more about what that means as we work our way through the text. But so far in this chapter, John has, uh, has shown us three miracles, but the purpose of this book overall, remember, is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. And John has already told us that having life in his name, he told us this in the previous chapter, that having life in his name involved receiving and experiencing of a blessed fullness of grace upon grace. But we must understand something, friends, that while that is 
what Christ offers to us. The fullness of grace upon grace upon grace like waves of a sea that never stop banging into the shore. In the same way, we have to understand that the enemy of our souls would love for us to not receive or experience or enjoy the fullness of God's grace in Christ Jesus, but that God's work in us, our enemy's desire is that God's work in us would be tarnished and that our joy in Christ would be depleted by sin. Now there are three types of people who have responded to Christ in different ways, all within this second chapter. Uh, First, the first miracle we saw was the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine, and there were only a few that understood that it was Jesus who had turned the water into wine. And their response, if you'll remember, was to believe in him. The response was to believe in him. Next, we saw Jesus go to the temple, where he cleansed the temple, and the people that, that were driven out, what was their response? Their response was to be hardened in their sin. They did not believe. They they were just hardened and and became stubborn in in face of the fact that Jesus had just performed miracles. Uh, And they demanded uh, a miracle, and he wouldn't do it. And now we're going to see this third group of people who respond with with a very shallow, a very superficial, a temporary faith, a fleeting faith. So let's look at verse 23. Chapter 2 of John chapter 2, verse 23. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. Let's just stop there for a minute. Because we have to understand something. Who are these people? Who are these people who are seeing his signs and believing? They're obviously Jews who, like Jesus, have come to Jerusalem to participate in the Passover feast and the observance of the the Passover. It's also possible, if not entirely likely, that many of these people were also there when Jesus cleansed the temple. And that these are people who saw Jesus cleanse the temple. And maybe they were really impressed with his demonstrated authority over the religious leaders of, uh, of the Jews. And John tells us that many of these people who are there seeing Jesus do these signs, as a result, they are believing in his name. Now, if Jesus were as concerned with numbers, as concerned with filling the place and and popularity, being popular and being being well-liked, if Jesus was as consumed with that thought as so much of the American church is, you would expect John to just do a full stop right here. You would expect that he would just leave it at the fact that all these people are believing in Jesus' name. And yet, John does not pull a full stop on us. He doesn't just stop there. He keeps digging. He digs deeper. He doesn't just leave us with the impression that all these people are suddenly believing in Jesus' name. No, instead, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John tells us that not all is as it appears. And so he continues in verses 24 and 25. It says, But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. 
It's a very interesting passage, isn't it? It's a difficult passage. And again, I believe it is a very uh, troubling passage to someone who has a very shallow faith. It's difficult to understand it. When we do, we also have to accept the fact that God doesn't recognize every profession of faith as valid, which in turn should cause us to examine ourselves and our own profession of faith, shouldn't it? To understand this passage completely, we have to understand that there is a play on words that takes place here in the Greek that doesn't get translated into the English. It's clear as day in the Greek. The Greek word that gets translated as entrusting in verse 24, if you, if you mark up your Bible or anything like that, circle that word, entrusting, in verse 24. That's the same Greek word that gets translated as believed in verse 23. Same word. Same word. So there's a, there's a parallel, there's a, there's a contrast going on that John is giving us that we have to see here. So it would be entirely correct to say that while many believed in Jesus, Jesus did not believe in them. But we have to immediately see why he didn't believe in them or why he didn't entrust himself to them. It's because he knew what was in the heart of man. He knew what was filling these people. And it was not legitimate biblical faith. This is another proof of Christ's divinity, his deity, the fact that he is fully God that John is advancing here. Who knows the heart? Who knows what is within a person? Who can only, who's the only one who can judge a man's heart? Only God. Only God. He knows the motivations that we have. He knows our ambitions that drive us to say what we say and to do the things that we do in a way that we do not. Not even about ourselves. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He sees our hearts more clearly, more clearly than we see our own hearts. And so we're supposed to see something here of the fullness of Christ's divine nature. We have to see that only God knows a man's heart and here, Jesus demonstrates that he has that knowledge too. And so, there's only one conclusion. He must be fully God, incarnate, in the flesh. And what happens here is that despite these people believing in his name, Jesus sees what's going on in their hearts and thus he refuses to believe in them. He refuses to entrust himself to them. And if this is simply a case of these people having a very immature faith, having a very small amount of faith, but a legitimate faith, we create a real problem, don't we? Because if these people have a faith that is legitimate, but just very small and, and immature, we have a clear indication that Jesus uh, will not commit to such a person, will not entrust himself to such a person. And yet, later on in the text, later on in John, Jesus will say this. He'll say, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I certainly will not cast out. That's from chapter 6, verse 37. But these people, at the Passover feast, Jesus is casting them out. And it's because, if he's casting them out, it's because they have not really come to him. 
So then what are we left with? We have to conclude not that these are people with legitimate but immature faith or small faith, but that these are people whose faith is not legitimate. It's not a biblical faith that they have, a biblical belief in Jesus' name that they have. And this isn't a category of people that is uh, you know, just completely unique to this passage. Scripture warns us repeatedly about this type of people. You see it in the Old Testament where God makes a distinction between those who honor Him with their, with their lips, but not with their hearts. Their hearts are far away. Even though they're, they're saying the right things, their hearts are not in the right place. Uh, it's also seen in the parable of the soils we see that there is a certain type of profession of faith that will not endure. And it's not a legitimate profession of faith. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we, we find perhaps the clearest place where we, where we find evidence for this type of, of superficial, temporary, fleeting faith. When Jesus is ending the Sermon on the Mount by saying this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. In this passage in Matthew, we see that this, this is a place where we can find this category of people. They love signs. You notice that? These people who, who are saying, Lord, Lord, they love signs and wonders and miracles, don't they? They're captivated by Jesus, by the, the supernatural that Jesus is able to perform. And because Jesus does these signs and wonders, they want to follow him. But they want to follow him because they want to, to do and they want to glory in all the signs and wonders and miracles and supernatural and mysterious things just like Jesus. They even call him Lord, Lord, as if to underline it. And yet Jesus doesn't entrust himself to those people. He doesn't believe in those people. He declares that they are under God's wrath. And he says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And one of the many great things that we can learn from this passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, is that while it's important that we know Jesus, it is more important that he knows us. While it's important that we know and profess Jesus and entrust ourselves to Jesus, it's more important that he believe in and know and entrust himself to us. See, part of the problem in our day and age is that there are so many variations of, of who people think Jesus is. People's imaginations go crazy when it comes to who Jesus is, and it shows the tendency, the propensity of man to make God in his own image, in man's own image. I mean, you've got the Mormon Jesus, who is very, very different from the Jehovah's Witness Jesus, who is very, very different from the Christian Science Jesus, the Socialist Jesus who sadly has actually become a very popular variation of Jesus in American culture. You've got the Republican Jesus. You've got hippie Jesus. You've got homeboy Jesus, who just wants to be your buddy, and he's never going to judge you, just hang out with you. 
You've got Jesus, the, the, the moral example, who just wanted to teach us to be nice to one another, to give us an example to follow, but did not die for anybody's sins and was not God incarnate. You've got Jesus, the mystic guru. You've got Jesus, the magic genie, who, who wants to give you everything that your flesh desires. You've got Jesus, who, who looks really, for all intents and purposes, exactly like Santa Claus. And the list just goes on and on and on. So when people say that they believe in Jesus, that they know Jesus, one of the questions we have to be asking is, which Jesus are you talking about? The biblical Jesus who will confront you in your sin, but will also produce change in a person. Or the Jesus who's good to just leave you as you are, a Jesus who's, who's just altogether different from the biblical Jesus. See, when the majority of people in our country say that they know Jesus, they're talking about one of these imaginary Jesuses, one of these false caricatures of Jesus. The real Jesus is the biblical Jesus. The question is, do you know the biblical Jesus? Do you believe in and worship the biblical Jesus? But more importantly, do you believe in him in a way that demonstrates that he knows you? That he has entrusted himself to you? Have you entrusted yourself to him in a way that demonstrates that he has entrusted himself to you? In our previous passage in John, Jesus refused to do signs for the religious leaders other than to prophesy of his own resurrection. But Jesus does signs for these people at the Passover feast. They see him doing all these, all these signs and, and miracles and, and they believe in his name, but he doesn't believe in them. He doesn't entrust himself to them. How do we make any sense of this? Because we would rightfully think that if anything should produce faith in a person, if any type of evidence is going to cause a person to have legitimate and, and acceptable faith, if there's any proof that would, that would convince somebody to believe, it, it's miracles, right? Right in front of them. Things that they can't explain. Things that they know are, are supernatural. It's miracles. That, if anything, that we can observe, that we, that we can uh, perceive if anything, can convince a person to believe. It's miracles. But what we're supposed to see here is that it's not enough to come to him or to believe in him just because of these signs. Yes, it's absolutely true that these miracles should cause a person to repent and to put their, their faith for salvation in him, to believe in him. But if a person only believes in him because of what they perceive, because of what he can do, it's not acceptable to him. See, these people are, are just like us. They're captivated by curiosity. They, they love mysterious things that they can't explain. They love the mysterious, the, the unexplainable. And, and people in our culture do too. In fact, a lot of us probably do as well. I mean, why do you think uh, you know, a magician will draw a crowd? Why do you think that people get caught up in, in theories that they, that things that they can't explain, so they come up with a conspiracy theory, some, some wild conspiracy theory. I mean, what happens with all of these things, whether it's magic or, or conspiracy theories, is that people, by and large, eventually get bored with it. I mean, if you understand how to do a magic trick, 
It's gone. It, it doesn't captivate you at all anymore. And so, if, if this is what's drawing you, something that you can perceive, something that you can't explain, once you come up with some kind of explanation for it, you either have to find something else that's more exciting, or you just completely grow out of that phase of seeking things that are exciting, phenomenon, you know, things like that. See, it's, it's, it's great that Jesus does these signs. It's great that Jesus does miracles. But those things don't establish his worthiness. Those things don't establish uh, the, the, the fact that he alone is worthy of all of our devotion, of all of our faith. They demonstrate his worthiness. But he's not worthy of our faith just because of what he's capable of doing. He's, he's worthy of our faith. He's worthy of our devotion, whether he chooses to perform signs and miracles or not. He's worthy of our faith simply because of who he is. Who he is. Do you see that distinction? Here are people that are drawn to him because of what he does, but they are not drawn to him because of who he is. And that, that is what makes Jesus worthy of our faith. We must worship and believe in Jesus not only because of what he has done or what he can do, but first and foremost, we must worship and believe because of who he is. He is the fullness of God in human flesh, the creator and sustainer of all things. So we see that what belief or whatever faith these people had, it wasn't enough. It was insufficient because it was incomplete. Their faith is only based on what they perceived, what they were able to empirically observe. But it doesn't lead them to spiritual surrender. It doesn't lead them to spiritual surrender. It doesn't cause them to see the, the, the ugliness of their own sin. And, and thus it, it won't endure it won't endure when, when there's nothing for them to physically see. And thus, it should alert us to the high degree of concern that we should have for anyone who thinks that they will believe if we can just give them some kind of visible, tangible, observable, quantifiable proof in order for them to believe. If they won't believe Moses and the prophets then they will not believe even if someone raises from the dead. If they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe any kind of evidence. See, this is very confusing for a person who, who doesn't understand that God is not pleased by just any and every profession of faith. But this forces us to ask ourselves a very important question. Is this you? I have to ask, is, is this me? Do you have a faith that is steadfast based on who Jesus is? Or do you have a faith that's going to be just very short-lived? And, and the way to answer that question is to examine why you believe in Jesus. Do you believe just because you're convinced that there's something in it for you? Do you believe because there's something just, just very exciting phenomenologically? Do you believe because you're convinced that if you will believe in Jesus, you'll have fewer problems in life? 
Do you believe because you think that there won't be consequences for your sin, and so you just want, you, you want fire insurance, but, but you love your sin, and so you won't turn from your sin? Do you, do you believe because you're convinced that Jesus will never let you be sick? Be amazed how many people out there believe that. Do you believe just because you think that Jesus will give, everything, uh, give you everything materially that you could ever want or need? Does your God look more like Santa Claus than this Jesus who will not entrust himself to false believers? Do you believe in Jesus just because there's something in it for you personally to benefit from? Or do you believe because you're convinced that Jesus alone is the Messiah, that Jesus alone is God in the flesh, and thus Jesus alone is worthy of all of our faith, all of our devotion, all of our worship, even if our worship, devotion, and faith means going straight toward hardship. Even if it costs you everything, even if it costs you your life, do you think it's worth it to believe in Jesus? And here's where we need to draw context into this account because this is the scene that leads to a, a very famous conversation that takes place in the ne next chapter when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, which is key, by the way, but we'll get to that. Uh, but he apparently sees all these people, Nicodemus sees all these people who are believing in Jesus' name, but when he comes to Jesus privately in the darkness of night, what does he say about who Jesus is? If you look down in your Bibles at chapter 3, verse 2, listen to what, what he says to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, not Lord, he says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. See, these people, these are people who recognize that Jesus is a teacher. He, he's a rabbi. Uh, it is a term of respect. It was a, a term that you could apply to Jesus, absolutely. But here's what we have to see. There's no mention in here of him being Lord. There's no mention in here that these people perceive him to be a savior. They understand that he's from God because he's doing all these signs, but they don't believe that he is God. And so, they have only a superficial, artificial, fleeting faith, a faith that does not bear good fruit, like repentance, a faith that does not endure. And this is such an important lesson for us on a personal level. But we should also see how it relates to evangelism as well. In an age in which so many evangelistic strategies are out there and so many of them involve pressuring a person, pressing a person to make a decision on the spot, it is crucial that we understand the reality of false professions of faith. There's a well-known preacher who ends every one of his sermons that, that, I've, that I've read or heard uh, by, by leading his audience, his congregation, through what you would call the, the sinner's prayer. And just after completing this sinner's prayer, he says something along the lines of this. He says, if you prayed that prayer, welcome to the family of God. This passage that we're looking at today should cause us to reflect on the reality that salvation is entirely the work of God. It is entirely by grace, by the power of the Spirit, converting us. It is God's work 
in us. It's not the work of man. It's not by the pressure of the moment. It's not by the pressure of the evangelist that a person comes to Jesus. John warns us about these types of people who make an initial profession of faith, and yet they have a faith that does not endure. He tells us in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, he says this. He says, children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us so these are people who had made professions of faith they had believed in Jesus's name many of them I have no doubt were also very sincere but after some amount of time, they ended up walking away. They, they left the covenant community. They stopped gathering for worship with the saints. They stopped submitting to the authority of the elders in their local church. And John tells us that the reason for this is really very simple. They were never really one of us. They had a shallow faith, a temporary faith. A fleeting faith, a faith that did not endure, a faith that was based simply, uh, that, that was not based simply on the fact that God alone is worthy of our faith and devotion and worship and obedient submission just because of who God is. These people at the Passover feast that we see here in John. They find Jesus to be very enticing. They find Jesus to be to be exciting. Maybe they recognized him as the Messiah, but they had a wrong expectation of what he as the Messiah would be doing. And we see exactly these types of people rejected by Jesus later in John's testimony. Jesus is, you know, he, he performs these, these great miracles, uh, feeding uh, thousands of people, ex nihilo, essentially, uh, out of, out of, out of turn, turning something very small into something very big. But then we read this in chapter 6, verse 15. So Jesus, perceiving, here he is again, looking into the hearts of man. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. It's from chapter 6, verse 15. So again, these weren't people who believed and worshipped Jesus because he was worthy, just because of who he is, but because of what they thought they could personally gain from him. He was just a tool for them, something to add to their life, to make their lives better, to accomplish their will. And so what does Jesus do with somebody like that? He refuses to entrust himself to them. He pulls away from them. He, he withdraws. We see another example of this shallow, false, superficial faith in a man named Simon in Acts chapter 8. So we read this, starting in uh, chapter 8, verse 9. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. 
and they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. Remember how I was saying that people are, even in our day and age, are are drawn to magic? That's what was going on here too. But when they, these people who are observing Simon, who, who, who see him doing these magic arts, but when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip as he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. It sounds great so far, right? The question is, what is he really drawn to? He's drawn to the mysterious. So it might seem great, but eh, not so much, actually. There are already some really strong indications that this man, Simon, was just nothing but trouble. And so when the disciples, as we go through the text, so the disciples start laying hands on people and those people start uh, receiving the gifts of the Holy Spirit, then we read this, continuing in verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands will receive the Holy Spirit. And what does Peter say to him? Luke tells us, Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. So Peter gives him a stinging rebuke and says you need to go to the Lord and you need to beg for mercy. And his response is to say, you'll need to go to the Lord for me. You pray for me. I'm not going to the Lord, is essentially what he says. See, the difference between legitimate biblical faith and shallow false professions of faith is made evident, again, in this story of Simon. Simon did not want Jesus. What he wanted was personal power. What he wanted was to be the most amazing, mysterious act in town. What he wanted was personal power and authority like those John talks about who went out from the church because they were not ever really part of the church, I don't believe that these people were, uh, were all necessarily looking for the same thing that Simon was. But what they had in common with Simon is that they deceived even themselves as they're at the Passover feast. They're, they're claiming to believe, and, and Nicodemus knows it, so there's obviously some kind of outward profession going on but what we see is that they've deceived even themselves. There's something about the Christian faith that appeals even to fallen natural man. But whatever that might be, it's not the gospel. Whatever that might be, it's not the biblical Jesus. The biblical Jesus does not appeal to the natural man. And so when it turns out that Christianity doesn't have all the the bells and whistles, all the, the perks and personal benefits that these people thought that it would offer, they fall away. Their faith doesn't endure. And what we see here in John chapter 2 is that Jesus, who is fully God, is entirely aware of what's going on in the hearts of these people who are claiming to believe in his name. He knows why they're claiming to believe in him, and he knows that it's ultimately out of some form of sinful ambition. 
These are not people who are convinced of their utter lostness without him. These are not people who are convinced of their desperate need to be saved. These are not people who are convinced that this man, Jesus Christ, is God incarnate or that their hope for salvation must be placed entirely, entirely in him. Now I have to imagine little artistic license here. Imagine being in their shoes and what they must be thinking, given what we know about what's going on uh, in their hearts. We have to imagine, given that they are celebrating the Passover, that these people are convinced that they are good with God. After all, they're, they're Jewish. Uh, they're, they're convinced, you know, that there's only one Israel, the, the, the Israel that's according to the flesh descended from the line of Abraham and Jacob. Jesus will eventually confront the people in this error. But these people probably think, we have to imagine, they probably think they're good with God, not just because of their ethnic heritage, but because they're, they're observing the Passover just as God instructed them to do in the law. They don't see themselves as sinners who are completely lost and desperately in need of a Savior. They're impressed and they're amazed by the phenomenon, by what they can perceive, by the signs that Jesus performed for them, but they weren't denying themselves, taking up their crosses and following Him. They weren't entrusting themselves fully to Him, and so He didn't entrust Himself to them either because He knew their hearts. He knew their hearts better than they knew their own hearts. And friends, we need to understand that the same is true with you and me. Whatever you might feel at any given moment, we have to understand how deceptive our feelings can be. What, what we perceive and what we believe must be shaped by Scripture, not by our feelings. By Scripture, by God's unchanging Word. And what he says, not what we feel about ourselves or about others. Jesus, God, knows the heart completely. Sin prevents us from even knowing our own hearts completely. Sin is so strong that we are even capable of deceiving ourselves. But we must understand that our sin is never ever so strong that we're capable of deceiving God. We might deceive ourselves, and we do on a regular basis, but we do not deceive God, who alone can see and judge the heart of man. God sees every thought, every intention of the heart, every circumstance we face, every temptation we entertain and give into, every desire that we pursue. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He knows it all. And you know what that causes us to do, or what it should cause us to do? It should cause us to understand that there's nothing to hide. Just confess. Just come to him. Be transparent even though he, he already sees. But just confess. Because you can't hide it anyway, no matter how hard you try. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And friends, that should be a terrifying thing for the person who does not have a legitimate, enduring faith in Jesus. Because his word clearly tells us throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament that man's heart is desperately, desperately wicked. And that the best that we have to offer from the treasure chest of our own personal goodness is like filthy rags to him. 
So what does God see when he looks at the heart of man? What does Jesus see as he looks at the heart, the hearts of these people? Quoting from various passages from throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit tells us what Jesus sees, what God sees as he surveys all of humanity in Romans chapter 3. He says this, and these are all quotations from the Old Testament. He says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. And then it's as if, he says, really? Check again. Double check to see if there's even one exception to this judgment. He concludes in verse 12, chapter 3, there is not even one. There is not even one. This is what Jesus knows is going on in the hearts of these people. And when you understand this, you understand how desperately lost, how spiritually dead we are by nature. I mean, how lost do you have to be by nature that not even one seeks for God? How, how dead do you have to be that, that not even one tries to, tries to get right with God? I mean, if you go to a graveyard, uh, you'll find that not even one of the bodies that's buried is trying to dig its way out of the ground. Why not? Because it's dead, and dead bodies don't dig their way out of the ground. And how is it possible that nobody in all of humanity is righteous, and that none even attempts to seek for God? Because, similarly, we're born dead spiritually, by nature. But God, who knows all, who sees all, who, who knows the heart of man, and who knows us better than we know ourselves, God is a God who is full of grace and mercy and compassion. It is not difficult, friends, for us to love somebody who, who loves us back. It is not difficult to love somebody who, who treats us well. It's not difficult to forgive somebody who is at least usually agreeable with us. It might be possible to love somebody who, who usually isn't agreeable with us. But to love somebody who is only constantly filled with contempt, only constantly filled with rebellion and animosity and hatred, somebody that would, that would nail the one who loves them the best and the most to a cross. That is the kind of love that God has unto his own. And when we understand this about ourselves, when we see how dead in our sins we are by nature, we must come to see that salvation is entirely by the grace of God. Entirely. From beginning to end. See, if we have a low view of our personal sin, if we think, well, you know, yeah, I sin, but everybody sins. So you start comparing yourself to man, so you get a, a, really what's a, a low view of sin. You start to have a low view of God as well. And you have a high view of yourself. So if you have a, a high view of self, you have a low view of God. But such people don't seek God's grace because they're not convinced of their guilt before Him. But if we... If we put the teeter-totter the other way, and we have a, a high view of God and a, a low view of self, what that does is produce a, a high view of sin, a right view of sin, where we understand 
that God is holy and that we are completely lost without his grace and without his goodness. See, to the the extent that we understand the depths of God's grace and his goodness toward us, our worship will be filled with gratitude in our lives. We'll be marked by an increasing surrender, an increasing obedience to the Lordship of Christ. We must believe in a way that demonstrates that Christ has entrusted himself unto us. You might ask, what does that even look like? Jesus tells us, John 14, 21, Jesus says this, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And he continues in verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. See, the Lord entrusts himself to those who believe in him and worship him with a faith that is demonstrated through obedience to him, through surrender to him. Friends, we need to examine ourselves. And we must examine ourselves rightly and biblically because there is such a thing as a superficial faith that does not result in salvation. Maybe this passage has caused you to look at your own faith this morning and to realize that maybe you were drawn to Jesus for all the wrong reasons, not because of of who he is, but because all these benefits. You just wanted fire insurance, but you didn't want to surrender, or whatever the the reason may be. You realize that you had a faith that isn't based just on who Jesus is and how worthy he is of our faith and devotion. And if you have seen that about yourself this morning, Rejoice. Rejoice because that is God's grace opening the eyes of your heart to understand that Jesus is worthy of our faith and devotion just because of who He is. And that is the kind of faith that He accepts. That is the kind of faith that He receives. That's the kind of faith that He entrusts Himself to. What grace that He would make Himself known to you like that. So don't put it off. If that's you today, don't put it off. Don't harden your heart. Receive his grace through faith alone, in Christ alone today, and be reconciled to God. But friends, it's not just converts and and young believers who need to, to hear over and over about their need for grace. No. The longer we walk with the Lord, the more we realize how great our need for grace is every single second of every day. What a joy it is to be reminded of our great need for grace because we also understand that Christ is an endless well of grace, infinitely deep and able to provide for our every need. No sin too great for him to forgive. No stain too bad for him to cleanse. Maybe your faith is small. Maybe your faith is great. Whichever the case may be, I urge you today with all of the authority of Scripture to stand on, to believe, and to worship Christ, not only because of what He has done, and He has done great things, hasn't He? 
among those things, if you have a legitimate and, and biblical and enduring faith, He has reconciled you unto God by taking your sin and your guilt and your shame upon Himself. And in exchange, He has imputed His own perfect righteousness to you so that you stand before God completely cleansed in the very righteousness of Christ. But don't only believe and worship him because of what he has done or what he can do. Believe and worship him because of who he is. He, his person, he is the object of our faith. His work is not the object of our faith. He is. And that is a legitimate biblical faith that endures. That's the faith that is a gift from God. The faith that God demands, God supplies. And the faith that God supplies, God sustains. So may God grant us much grace and mercy to examine ourselves rightly and to believe, love, worship, and obey Christ Jesus, our Savior and Lord, because of who he is, the fullness of God in the flesh, our blessed and worthy Redeemer. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, your word can assail us sometimes. But we thank you that your word can also grant us such deep and true assurance. And so we pray, Lord, that if your, if your word has afflicted us today, that you, would, that you would heal us, that you would cleanse us, that you would grant us assurance, that you would grant us grace to observe and, and to examine ourselves rightly and to find great peace and joy in seeing that our faith is in Christ because of who he is, all by your grace, all by your mercy. We remember that while we were enemies, you sent Christ to die for us. What great love you have for us. We pray, Lord, that this love that you have for us, this grace that you have given us, this new life that you have imparted to us would bring about change in our lives, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we meditate on your word and the ramifications of your word, that our lives would be purified, cleansed from sin, that we would glorify Christ by the good fruit that we bear in our lives, all because of your mercy and grace. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it wounds us and heals us. The way that it strengthens us and encourages us. The way that it shows us that Jesus is Lord and he is our only hope. And for whatever, whatever faith we may be lacking today, Lord, please increase our faith. Help our, our unbelief that Christ would be the thing, the one that we hold to and refuse to let go because we understand that he alone is worthy of our 
worship of our faith and of our obedience. All by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.